The following is a message by Joel Bain, the lead pastor at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. To learn more about Grace Family Church, visit gracefam.church. As you heard, we are continuing our nonstop journey through the Apostle Paul's letter to the Philippians. So please turn or navigate to Philippians chapter 3. Today we're going to conclude this magnificent and weighty chapter. Our masterclass with the great great apostle is coming to an end. He has told us his story. Now he's going to directly call us to imitation, to adopt his mindset and follow his example. If you are not clear what it really looks like to live as a Christian each day, if you ever feel like you've lost your bearings, if you get disoriented, distracted by what feel like pressing earthly concerns, or overwhelmed by busyness or suffering, then this passage, Philippians 3, 12 to 21, is for you. Tony Merida and Francis Chan provide this wise and candid counseling in their Philippians commentary. Every Christian should take a close look at this passage because Paul provides an inspiring and instructive path for growing in spiritual maturity. So, let's look closely at this passage and listen to it attentively as those in constant need of God's Spirit to teach us and empower us to do His good pleasure. Philippians 3, reading from verse 12 through 21. Not that I have already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but... I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise... God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Several months ago, I was in conversation with a friend of mine whom I've known since we were young teenagers. In passing, he said something that provoked me, and I just stopped him in his tracks. He said, you know, I run with Vaughn some mornings. I mean, that sounds innocuous enough, but I was absolutely mystified. How can you run with Vaughn? You see, the Vaughn in question is also a friend of ours that we've known since our teen years. And as long as I've known Vaughn, he's been a serious runner, a dedicated runner. He that the kind who's getting up early in the morning, many mornings, and just running for miles. And then he'll just up and do these 5Ks and 10Ks. But the friend I was in conversation with? No. I knew that that had never been his thing. So my question really was, what do you actually mean when you say you run with Vaughn? 
Admittedly, a part of my reaction came from knowing that there was no way I could keep company with Vaughn. And I was distressed at the thought that I could no longer keep company with this friend in question, who I considered to be as useless at running as I am. Now, I'm quite content with Vaughn putting me to shame, but not this guy. Come on. <laughs> You know, when it comes to exercise, we have a sense of those who are way ahead of us, don't we? And that's true spiritually also, isn't it? That's what makes this passage in Philippians 3 so surprising, though. Here, the Apostle Paul invites the Philippian church to keep company with him, to be his running partners. And we, we are included in this invitation. Several times in this passage, you're going to see how the one you, you'd, you'd think would one we would see as a spiritual giant and miles ahead of us, uh, much more flabby Christians, comes alongside us. He's not keeping his regimen a secret from us. He wants us to know exactly how he thinks about pursuing knowing Jesus. He wants us to think like he does, to adopt his singular devotion, focused on the prize. And he wants us to imitate his life and other godly examples around uh, us who are distinguished by living like citizens of heaven while they wait for Jesus' return. So this is a big takeaway then from our final masterclass in Philippians chapter 3. Imitate those who pursue knowing Jesus with singular devotion, eagerly awaiting for our Savior's return. We can't afford to think that this is an advanced class, you know, for those who are much more serious believers and not for the rest of us. What Paul is laying out for us is the pattern for the normal Christian life. Those of us that Jesus has made his own must expend effort in pursuing growth and must embrace a heavenly perspective. And to do so, we need to adopt Paul's mindset and keep our eyes on good examples around us. Imitate those who pursue knowing Jesus with singular devotion, eagerly waiting for a Savior's return. Paul has a lot to say here. We're going to break this final class into two sets of instructions. Think in this way, verses 12 through 16, and walk in this way, verses 17 to 21. So first, think in this way. Now, this text is an ocean of glorious truth. The more time I spent immersed in it, the more I saw and the more questions I had. Now, I, I felt at a point in my preparation that it would have been great for me to have had the chance to go through it much more slowly in more than one sermon, but there's a value in the pace we've chosen. They're, they're, I was thinking about it, and you know, there are different ways that you can enjoy the ocean. Instead of deep diving into this expanse, I want to fish in it for you. I won't attempt to cover every aspect of it, but instead, I want to hook and prepare some of its delicacies so we can be nourished by them. The first is found in verse 12. It's Paul's admission. The great apostle is saying in verse 12 that he is not the finished article. He hasn't reached the goal. He underscores this at the start of verse 13. I do not consider that I have made it my own. Earlier in this series, I pointed out how easy it is to see the apostle Paul in a spiritual class of his own. His magnificent statement of his desire to know Christ that we heard last week in verses 10 and 11 certainly would seem to put him up there on his own. But that's not how Paul sees himself. Archantius points out, Paul's magnificent quest to know Christ fully was matched by a magnificent humility. 
The reality is, the more we come to, to know Christ, the more we will come to sense our need to grow. We have so many examples of leadership that are decidedly not like this. Even in the church, it's easy to look for experts, for those who have transcended the problems that overwhelm the rest of us. So often leadership is framed in this way. I can show you how to get to where I am. You know, I've made it. I, I'm accomplished. At any rate, I'm certainly way ahead of where you are. So follow me. But Paul starts his call to imitation by saying and emphasizing that he is not there yet. Tony Merida and Francis Chan helpfully comment, mature people humbly acknowledge that they haven't arrived. Paul is identifying with them as fellow Christians. He doesn't want them to think that he is somehow superhuman and superior. Over and over again during our internships and our, 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 our training uh, in the States, we were exposed to leaders who were not just aware of their shortcomings, but humbly admitted that they had not yet arrived. They were eager to share their mistakes, something that seemed counterintuitive to us. Uh, and they were eager to share their need for growth. These men and women were amazed by grace and not by themselves. The irony was, was that that was what made them so awesome in our minds. It made them awesome yet accessible. When a leader positions himself as accomplished, as competent in knowledge and skill, when he rarely admits mistakes, if he isn't eager to share his weaknesses, then we might admire him in some ways, but we won't see him as somebody whom we can run with as we follow Jesus. Listen to Meridan Chan again. Leadership is not lordship, and it's not about being superior. It's about following Jesus, becoming more like him, and bringing others along the journey. That's the kind of gospel culture we want to create among us, and I hope you're already seeing that in us. In verse 12, Paul says, Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. This question bothered me in the text. What is Paul after? He doesn't actually specify in this section. So if you start reading at verse 12, he's just kind of saying this. And so in verse 14, he uses the language of athletic competition, which we're going to examine some more soon, and calls it a goal, picturing a target or a finish line. So what is Paul's goal? That's the second thing we want to fish out here. Paul's goal. To see it, we're going to need to refresh our memory uh, of verses 10 and 11. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul's goal that he has not yet obtained, the perfection that he's pressing towards, is not moral perfection in this life, but perfection in the sense of completion. Knowing Christ fully in the resurrection to come. Many of the truths in this text are like a train that must keep its wheel on two parallel tracks. Already and not yet. Paul already knows Christ. We saw this last week. He already has gained Christ. And he wants to be constantly growing in that knowledge through sharing in Jesus' sufferings and experiencing his resurrection power in everyday life. As we saw last week. But the goal he's pressing towards takes him even further, beyond what's possible in this life. This is the not yet that he desires. As John Piper points out, the resurrection is the final, decisive experience of gaining Christ. That's what's not yet in Paul's grasp. Paul, therefore, is straining forward to the life 
to come. So the question that I've been wrestling with as I've kind of sat in this text is, do I long for the resurrection? I mean, one of the things we wanted to build into our culture is seen on our DNA. E, expect the Lord's return. So we want to sing songs like we sang this morning. We will see, we will know like we've never known before and just sing of our hope. But as I'm wrestling with this question of do I expect the resurrection, uh, it's important to realize that we're not talking about the resurrection as an isolated event, but as the culmination of our hope as Christians. Now, I know that the return of Jesus means the end of war, and we've been seeing the effect of war probably more dramatically. Not that war ever stopped, but you, know, you get so much coverage of what's happening in the Ukraine, and we become numb over time. The return of Jesus means the end of war and of injustice and suffering, including the small ways in which I suffer personally. And from time to time, I find myself groaning with the rest of creation for that. But it's one thing to long to get out of here. It's another to long for Jesus. I have to ask myself, do I long to know Jesus fully? Something would be desperately wrong if you were in a long-distance relationship, but you weren't longing to be face-to-face. Is the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord driving me to pray, come Lord Jesus? If I'm being honest, sometimes all I'm longing for is an easier life down here. I want my plans to succeed and I want my discomfort to be minimal. You see, the gospel is not just a rescue from hell, but an upward, a heavenward call. Paul's goal has been shaped by hearing in the gospel the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, as the text says. That call affects not just how he lives now, but what he longs for, whom he longs for. Paul's desire to know Jesus, even in the fellowship of his sufferings, is not a masochistic tendency, but the embracing of union with Christ that will lead to the fullness of union with Christ in the resurrection. Now, the good news for us is that it's the gospel that creates and strengthens in us the longing to be with Jesus. So it's something we can pray for and trust God to work in us through his word. The third thing I want us to be convicted by and nourished by is Paul's determination. In my opinion, verses 12 to 14 are begging for a soundtrack. I mean, they pulse with determination that brings to my mind sights and sounds from the movies that populate my imagination as we watch Paul working out his own salvation, sweating and straining. The music that comes to mind for me personally is the theme from Rocky when he's running up the the stairs in Philadelphia, but I think that shows my age because I suspect there are a lot of contemporary parallels. Paul describes his singular devotion in pursuit of his goal, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forwards what lies ahead, I press on. Matthew Harmon helps us to access these images. Using the athletic imagery drawn from the ancient Greco-Roman foot races, Paul portrays himself as a runner who strains forward toward the goal of the finish line. Trained runners know that looking back not only slows one down, but more significantly takes one's eyes off the goal, which can lead to disaster. So while we want to look back with gratitude for how God has worked in our lives and to look back to Calvary to see his work of salvation, there are ways of looking back that can hinder our pursuit. So trading on past glories, you know, remember in the glory days, I remember when back in the days I was doing all of these things for Jesus, you know. 
being satisfied with past successes, even longing for what our relationship with God used to look like, can distract us from pressing and straining forward. Dwelling on past failures, who we were before we met Christ, how much of a mess we made of our lives, uh, even ways we've fallen and failed as believers, ways we've stagnated, won't serve us either. We are not limited by our past. You see, the promise of, of God to, to us in Christ is that the best is yet to come. But why is Paul exerting all this effort? If we've understood his goal correctly, gaining Christ fully in the resurrection, what's the point of energetically, energetically pursuing a goal that you know you cannot reach in this life? Why isn't Paul just kind of hanging around waiting for heaven to arrive? After all, isn't he secure in his salvation? Sure that he who began a good work in him will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ? You see, Paul's determination in this passage makes this truth inescapable. Perseverance matters. It is indispensable. Gordon Fee captures it wonderfully. The future belongs only to those who persevere. We will not coast into the arms of Jesus. We must run towards him. But that doesn't mean our efforts will come from anxiety. Or, 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 or the question is, doesn't that mean if, if perseverance matters that there's going to be this, this aspect of anxiety which overtakes us as we seek to pursue God? Anxiety about the future rather than assurance? If we're going to think the way Paul does, we have to take careful note of what fuels his determination. It's not anxiety. Look at the second half of verse 12 again in your Bibles. I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Christ has made me his own. That's done and dusted. It's certain. It's a finished work. Notice again the personal language that we saw uh, back, back last week. He's made me his own. The surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Christ did not merely make salvation possible for those who believe in him and endure to the end. He made me his own. Therefore, I press on and grab hold of my future with him. As Arkent Hughes explains, Paul's whole pursuit of Christ was Christ-originated, Christ-motivated, and Christ-propelled. Jesus' finished work precedes and is the basis for our ongoing effort. Our pursuit is absolutely necessary, but this is a response to the certainty of his finished work. A biblically shaped understanding of assurance can never lead to complacency and disinterest in pursuing Jesus. So run to Jesus, loved ones, because he came for you and made you his own. We've thrown our line into this vast ocean of glorious truths and fished out three particular ones so far. Paul's admission, his goal, and his determination. There's one more I want you to grab hold of, or rather I want it to grab hold of you. Paul's invitation. All throughout these verses, Paul has been presenting his pursuit, not as biographical data, but as an invitation to imitation. In verses 15 and 16, that becomes explicit. Look at those verses again in your Bible. Let those of us who are mature think in this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Once again, Paul is beckoning to the Philippian church. He's not talking down to them. He's positioning himself right beside them and inviting them to think in this way. 
to share his humble, singular devotion to pursuing Jesus. The language used here, thinking this way, mirrors chapter 2, verse 2, being of the same mind. Throughout this letter, Paul has been aiming to head off undercurrents of disunity that are threatening this congregation. He's calling them again to unity by inviting them to adopt his way of thinking about pursuing Jesus. One of the treasures here is, that, is the truth that maturity is, is in one sense a mindset. Maturity is in one sense a way of thinking. That's why you can have people who, are, who have been believers for a very short time who are stable and growing in their faith. And on the other hand, believers who have been around for a very long time but are constantly hamstrung in their growth because of how they think. But wherever we are, if you are following Jesus, what you have in front of you is an invitation to think in the way that Paul does. Outside of our united pursuit of Christ and our embracing of a cross-shaped life, Paul graciously makes room for disagreement. But he has faith for such things. Gordon Fee it helps us to understand Paul's posture. Here is the offer of friendship. They may freely disagree with him at points on many matters, and if any matter counts for something, Paul trusts God to bring them up to speed here as well. But Paul doesn't only have thinking in view. Gordon Fee says it well. What's at stake for Paul is, first of all, a basic frame of mind, a way of looking at everything, which in turn leads to a way of behaving. That's what he's saying in verse 16. To hold true to what we have attained means let's keep living by the same standard to which we have attained. So we must live in conformity to the gospel. We cannot ignore its claims on our life. Paul's confidence that God will bring clarity where there's disagreement is contingent on this. You know, from time to time as Christians, I've, I've spoken with many people who are just battling through troubling questions. Questions which really, you know, they don't understand how Jesus thinks about something. They don't understand how the gospel speaks about a particular thing. But you see, that doesn't mean we must stop obeying Jesus when we have such questions. In John 7, 17, Jesus says, If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. In other words, it is in the place of obedience and submission that we grow in understanding. As Silva puts it, growth comes through obedience. So we have pinpointed then Paul's admission, goal, determination, and invitation in the deep waters of verses 12 to 16. Now he's going to look back on his whole story told in this whole chapter and beckon these brothers and sisters to walk this way in verses 17 to 21. So let's read verse 17 again. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Paul has been building to this point in the letter for a long time. Remember, right, at, right from the very start, he expressed his love in the Lord for these saints, his dear brothers and sisters in Christ. He desires their progress and joy in the faith, so he's looking forward to visiting them once he's been released from prison. But he's written them to encourage them in their faith, and he's expecting that this letter is going to have a positive impact on them. And he'll hear that from Timothy when he brings back a report after Paul sends him to go visit these brothers and sisters. He knows some of the challenges they've been facing, particularly from their, their present suffering and the fact that it's threatening to rob them of their joy in Jesus. And that they could be drawn away from confidence in the Lord by false teachers. So he's told them his story. 
not just so that they can know him better, but to invite them to walk the path of joy by imitating him. Paul encourages them here to imitate his example and the example set by others who walk in this way, who walk like he does. Now, he's not slackening his pace from the sprint we just saw. He explains to walk has to do with behavior, living uprightly in all that one does. It's a word that Paul commonly uses to refer to how we live our whole lives. So who does Paul have in mind for them to imitate in addition to himself? Surely based on his commendation that we saw in chapter 2, he thinks they can learn much from both Timothy and Epaphroditus. He may be implying that there were some brothers and sisters in their congregation who they should look to as examples. But we also need to recognize this. Philippi was located uh, on a main highway that ran from east to west. This church would have been visited by many travelers, some of whom would have been Christians, among which would have been itinerant teachers. These saints, as was the practice, would have offered hospitality to other believers. Paul was encouraging them to note those who walked in the same way that he did, who embraced a cross-shaped life and longed for heaven, and to learn from these people. Merida and Chan get it right, get right at the heart of what's underneath this command. It's essential to receive sound teaching, but we also learn by observing the lives of people who illustrate sound teaching. Christianity is not just taught, it's also caught. So if we're going to grow in our faith in the way God intends, that won't happen only through our private times of reading the scriptures or in our prayer closets, but through relationships with others who are good examples of pursuing Jesus. Now, there are no perfect Christians, mind you. Remember, Paul has already given us his example of humble recognition that he is not the finished article. So we should be on the lookout then for people who are humble enough to say they have not arrived, but in whom we see the mindset of Christ and a heavenly gaze, a heavenward gaze reflected. Those are the kind of people that we need to keep our eyes on and to be humble enough to learn from. Now, suppose with me that you had an opportunity to spend a week among people who were excelling in your area of professional interest. Whatever it is, like maybe a production company for creatives, or a very successful company for entrepreneurs, or some people who are just really good at organizing themselves and setting goals and, and, and going at them. How would you posture yourself for that week? Wouldn't you come looking for opportunities to engage with those people, seeking to learn from them? Wouldn't you want to just kind of stand over their shoulder and watch them work? Would you let shyness rob you of the opportunity to learn during that week? Wouldn't you have questions at the red? No, I know you wouldn't. Absolutely not. Come on. I mean, you'd be like, right, 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 right on their shoulders, just kind of like. <laughs> wouldn't you have questions at the ready and, and follow-up questions in your back pocket? Do you realize that a healthy local church is a reservoir of good examples that you can imitate? Now, we at GFC are far from perfect. We have a lot of growing to do. But I'm grateful that I could think of several people among us who are examples of maturity, of the pursuit of knowing Jesus with singular devotion while waiting on his return. That means that there are people around here that you can pursue to learn from them. So don't just be cordial in relating. Fix your eyes on those who walk this way and ask them for help. Ask them if you can spend some time with them, to talk with them. We all have weaknesses, so it's a blessing to have many examples. And then there are also many areas in which varying opinions are fine. There are different ways of doing things. 
Stephen Lawson counsels, those who have no example wiser and godlier than themselves will aim at nothing and hit very little. And those who have only one personal example will likely eventually adopt not only that person's strengths, but also their weaknesses. You see, here's the thing. We need flesh and blood examples of living out what the scriptures call us to do. So we're called to share the gospel with others in light of Jesus' return. But what does that look like in my workplace or with my neighbors? How do I grow in that? We're called to delight in God's word and pray without ceasing. But what does that look like with all of the demands on my time? We are, we are to raise our children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. But what does that look like? How does it change as they grow older? Husbands are called to love their wives as themselves and wives to respect their husbands. But what does that really look like? What does it look like to use my singleness to pursue, pursue Jesus and to love others? Some of us need to step up to be the examples we're becoming. But we cannot do that with pride. We need to be open to be questioned. In fact, we ought to invite questions. And when those, ex when those questions expose areas of weakness or areas that we really haven't thought that much about, we need to be willing to recognize and acknowledge our shortfalling. One of the worst things we can do if we're going to help others is to arrogantly defend areas where we need to grow. We don't want people following our bad examples or adopting our weaknesses. No, seeing a weakness when somebody else sees a weakness and points it out to us, that actually might be an opportunity to pursue growth and knowledge together, which is a good example of how we live as believers. The bottom line is we can offer ourselves as those who are seriously pursuing knowing Christ and are simultaneously work in progress. I think one of the things I'm looking forward to is us establishing a rhythm of hospitality and being in each other's space as we restart grace groups in the coming weeks. Because um, I think that's going to help us so much. There's, there's so much we can do as we talk here, but when you're in somebody's home, when you see how they parent, when you see how they relate to their family, it gives you the opportunity to ask questions and say, hey, I noticed that. Tell me, tell me, tell me how you think about it, that. Tell me how you approach that. So I'm looking forward, and one of the things we're hoping is that as we start to gather together, we'll gather not just when they're meetings, but at many other times. When you're not able to find examples in your local church, you can look for them in other believers as well. And here's, here's something that, that, that hit me in my reading this week. Don't neglect the benefit of reading Christian biographies. I haven't taken nearly enough advantage of that, but I'm encouraged by this text. As Shannon Merida say, find some deceased mentors. Read the biographies of saints of old and find fresh encouragement from their way of life. One of Paul's concerns in pointing these believers to good examples is the presence of bad examples. And that's what he moves on to know in the text. He's talking about people who are Christian by their profession, but walk, that is, live their lives as enemies of the cross. It's striking language, isn't it? Mark Harmon explains, those who claim the name of Christ but live a life that is consumed or controlled by their sinful desires show themselves still to be enemies of the cross by their willful rejection of the cross-shaped life of self-denial and single-minded pursuit of Christ above all else. Paul has warned the Philippians before about the danger of being influenced by such people. He goes on in verse 19 to say more about them, and he starts at the end. Their end is destruction. Paul is saying that ultimately those who live as enemies of the cross show that their profession of faith was false. 
Even though Paul starts so conclusively, this passage is meant to function correctively. It's a warning not to follow such examples. But by extension, it's a warning not to be such people. If you profess faith in Christ, you cannot look like the pattern that follows here. If we see our resemblance in this text, to whatever extent, we must flee to Christ in repentance. Paul offers three more characteristics of enemies of the cross. Their God is their belly, meaning they live to please their own appetites and not to please the true God. Their glory is their shame. Merida and Chan again explain. They show, off, they show off things for which they should be ashamed. They enjoy and celebrate what offends God and should be avoided. As Christians, you need to have a working category for things that offend God because this world will push you in all kinds of directions and tell you that all kinds of things are fine and good and should be celebrated. So we need to have a working category shaped by the scripture for things that offend God so that we can run from them. He says finally that their mindsets their, their minds are set on earthly things. No, significantly, he's using the same language he used in verse 15 when he invited the Philippians to think in the same way he does. What he's saying is that these enemies of the cross have the opposite pattern of thinking. Their imaginations and goals are not captivated by Christ. The only thing that gets them excited is worldly things. What struck me here, though, is the fact that Paul is not just warning about such people. He is grieving over them as he writes. No, I definitely feel a temptation to get frustrated when I see people resembling uh, enemies of the cross. But Paul's example of grief points me to lament and to pray for them. So what do these verses mean then for our relationships? You need to be aware that there will always be people who talk the talk but do not walk the walk. Do not walk like they do. Do not be influenced by them. But what do you do if you're friends with people who are showing these traits to whatever extent? It gets tricky when people profess faith but don't live it out. It's even trickier when you're watching them drift away from Jesus. I think there's some wisdom to be found in stepping back and thinking about this text as a whole. You have to make a distinction between those you're running with and those you're reaching towards. Those whom you're pursuing with Christ. and those, Sorry, those whom you're pursuing Christ with and those you're pursuing for Christ in hopes that they repent. This requires deliberateness in our pursuit of Christ, including seeking out others to whom we look to as examples, and being deliberate about praying for and challenging those who we see heading in the wrong direction, even with tears. We also have to watch our hearts carefully. We need to admit to ourselves that we can, in some situations, depending on the temptations we're battling or succumbing to, be happy to find other Christians who are as carnal as we want to be. And it usually doesn't start as a holistic rebellion. We compartmentalize so well when we need to. Well, you know, he watches that show too. Doesn't that make it fine for me? You know, she's really materialistic. No, I'm not half as bad, so maybe the way I am is okay, you know? Or, boy, yeah, he doesn't use his time well either. You're not reading his Bible, so why should I worry? The point is, the only examples we should pursue are those who are living a cross-centered life and directing all their hopes beyond this life towards the life to come. And that's what Paul reminds us of in the last two verses of this chapter. This world is not our home. 
Returning to language used in chapter 1, verse 27, he says, as he paraphrases, our citizenship, hence our focus, is in heaven. That's one of the reasons we want to just build this reservoir of looking to heaven through our worship, so that our focus will be in heaven. You see, this is why we don't set our mind on earthly things. Linking back to verses 13 and 14, we strain forward, we press on, we run with singular devotion because we are waiting for a Savior. That language would have resonated with the Philippians because Caesar was referred to as a Savior. But even if they suffered under the regime of this human Savior, they could rejoice in their confidence that the real Savior was coming. Their Savior is the Lord, the one who we saw in chapter 2 has been given the name above every name, to whom every knee will bow. Right now, they are becoming like him through suffering and death, which is what Paul invited them to earlier in this chapter. But when he appears, he will transform them so that their bodies are like his glorious body. Understanding who we are, understanding who we are already, citizens of heaven, See, that's not a tentative status. We are already citizens of heaven. Understanding that will influence whom we imitate now. Looking to the hope of our Savior's return will help us to press towards the prize of knowing him fully, even as we are known. If you are not a believer, this morning what the gospel offers you is a new identity. It offers you a new citizenship, a, a new hope that transcends the best that this life has to offer and transforms the worst that we can experience now with the presence of Jesus. So I want to encourage you, if the Spirit of the Lord has been speaking to you this morning, don't hesitate to speak to Sheldon or myself after the service. We'd love to help you to take your first steps of faith in Christ. This hope in view... Sorry, this hope is in view in all that this letter has been calling us to be and do as believers. So let's look back at some of what's been going on in this letter for a moment. It's been calling us to strive side by side for the faith of the gospel, being a witness for Christ. To pursue unity in our local church by humbly serving each other, looking not only to our own interests but also to the interests of others. Working out our own salvation and resisting the temptation to grumble. Rejoicing in the Lord, glorying in Jesus, and putting no confidence in ourselves or our achievements. Embracing our suffering as a means of knowing Christ and experiencing His resurrection power. You see, we do all of this as we wait for the culmination of all of our hopes. Jesus' glorious return when we'll be gloriously transformed and will finally reach the goal and the prize that we have pursued. If we're going to follow Jesus... Throughout this life and into the next, we're going to need sustained effort and godly examples. That's what's at the heart of uh, the imitation Paul is calling us to in this passage. Imitate those who pursue knowing Jesus with singular devotion, eagerly waiting for our Savior's return. Beloved, let us think in this way, aware that we have not yet arrived, singularly focused on pursuing the prize of knowing Jesus that we will only reach in the life to come. Let us walk in this way, imitating Paul, historical examples, and those around us who live cross-shaped lives, weary of those whose talk does not match their walk, mindful of our heavenly citizenship and hope. Beloved, run through the line. We don't know when we'll reach the finish line of our lives, but we know that the, the prize we pursue, knowing Jesus fully, is beyond death itself. 
So run through the line. Don't slacken your pace. Don't stop straining forward. Run with focus, expending all your energy. Shake off complacency by remembering that Jesus saved you for this pursuit. Run hard while you joyfully wait for the one who has made us citizens of heaven. He is coming soon to save, transform, and satisfy us. Let's pray. You have just listened to a message by Joel Bain, the lead pastor at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. To learn more about Grace Family Church, visit gracefam.church.